Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. Today's guest is the wonderful and brilliant marriage therapist, Terry Real, who is going to coach all of us on bringing our wise adult rather than our inner children into our relationships. Vet bills can be expensive, but Spot Pet Insurance can give you up to 90% cash back on vet bills so you can worry less about high vet bills. Yep, up to 90% cash back on vet bills for unexpected accidents, illness, and even routine care. And with Spot Pet Insurance plans, you can go to any vet you want in the U.S. or Canada. There's no network you need to stick to, so visit your favorite vet and you can save money on expensive vet bills. That's Spot Pet Insurance. It's no wonder Spot is America's favorite pet insurance. Visit SpotPet.com for a free quote today. For all terms, visit SpotPetIns.com slash sample-policy. Spot Pet Insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produce Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. This is an independent ad from Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct. I talk about dysfunctional relational stances that we repeat over and over again. For example, here's one near to my heart. Angry pursuit. Angry pursuit is an oxymoron. Angry pursuit will never get, complaining about how the person isn't close to you will never get them closer to you. It is dysfunctional. It doesn't, that's what dysfunctional means. It doesn't work, it'll never get you what you want. And the first phase of the therapy that we do, relational life therapy, and in some ways the first phase of this book, is identifying what your repetitive, adaptive child relational stance is, the thing you do over and over and over again, automatically, knee-jerk, I talk about whoosh, W-H-O-O-S, it comes up like a wave. I just gotta do this. I've gotta fix this person, or I've gotta stand up for myself, or I've gotta get out of here. And that is the hallmark of your adaptive child, that it's automatic and, and compulsive. And this whole book is about moving beyond that part of you into the wise adult part of you that can take a breath and do something not automatic, but chosen deliberate, more skillful. So says best-selling author and renowned marriage counselor, Terry Real. His new book, Us, Getting Past You and Me to Build a More Loving Relationship, combines new findings in neuroscience and his vast experience working with couples on the brink of disaster to give readers the skills necessary to move their relationship from a dysfunctional you versus me into a more collaborative us. There is no such thing as working on a relationship, Terry tells us. In order to work on healing the system, we must heal the individual parts. So many of us, he says, grew up without adequate emotional support, and the techniques we develop to survive in those environments as children can go on to poison our intimate relationships. 
though we may not remember the trauma, our knee-jerk reactions to distressing situations and relational conflict push our learned adaptive strategies into overdrive. Terry's Science Back Toolkit helps individuals move beyond their involuntary response, which tends to be rigid, harsh, and unforgiving, and come into their potential as a wise adult. One who stops, thinks, and reflects, and is able to tap into a more collaborative self for the betterment of the relationship. Through deep individual work, nurturing our inner child, and choosing to go against our impulses rather than indulging them, we can transform ourselves and save our relationships. Okay, let's get to our conversation. Well, first of all, I'm sure you've been very busy helping couples navigate COVID and togetherness and existential ideas. Has it been different what's been coming out of relationships or is it just concentrated or is it better? Well, first of all, there's a real cutoff. How has COVID affected relationships with or without kids? Because COVID with kids has been a challenge. You know, everybody's homeschooled. So that's been an added stress for most families, having the kids home. Now they're back at school, thank goodness, but that was tough. COVID in general and COVID in couples without kids have been interesting. My language for it, at least, is that it's it's an amplifier. Mm -hmm. It's like whatever you had going is now going more intensely. And if you're a fighting couple, you're fighting more. If you're a loving couple, you're loving more. But the one thing that I found, which is really interesting, is that people held bent on their careers. And not to be sexist, but I'm going to say particularly men, found COVID to some degree relieving. Getting rid of the commute and out of the office meant more time at home with your family and lo and behold everybody liked it the men liked it and the family liked it and now i'm dealing with the rat races revving back up again and how do we keep this sense of warmth and togetherness in the face of going back to the office you know this is true when men get sick with disabled men, when men retire, when they're out of the rat race, they tend to gravitate to become more relational. Like mm. retired, older retired men become more relational. They start remembering birthdays and showing up at little kids' parties. And disabled, I worked for, I cut my teeth at the VA. And disabled war veterans were often sociometric stars. And so there was an inverse proportion to putting all your eggs in the basket of work performance and how connected you were to smelling the flowers and playing with your grandkids and being with your partner. So I think COVID has cut many ways. No, it's definitely been interesting. So I thought it was so fun to read us and to get your perspective on understanding couples when they come in and that sort of central question that you ask yourself, what part, what part am I talking to? Who? Right. So can you explain that? Yeah, here's my line. Um, when I sit with a couple or any client or, or even a, a work group, you know, in a corporate setting, as I'm speaking to someone, Uh, My first question is not, what are the external stressors? You know, that's what couples will come 
the in-laws, money, sex, the kids, whatever, the pandemic. I don't care that much. I mean, I'll listen. That's just sort of the, the media. That's, that's the medium through which the dynamic plays itself out, the content. But I don't really care. A good couple can handle stress. The most important question is not even what's the choreography, which is very important in couples therapy. And we say the more, the more. The more she pursues, the more he distances, the more he distances, the more she pursues. That's their, their repetitive, vicious circle. Very important, but not the most important. The most important question is this. Which part of you am I speaking to? Am I speaking to the prefrontal cortex part of the brain, the most mature part of the brain in an individual's development, the latest part of the brain that developed in the human species, the wise adult part of you, I call it, here and now, feet on the floor, present, able to stop, think, reflect, make deliberate conscious choices, the mature best part of you? Or am I speaking to the two other parts of you? And I speak about what I call the wounded child part of you, very famous in trauma work, which tends to be a very young part of us, three, four or five years old. And that's the part of us that was on the receiving end of the abuse or the neglect that we survived, just experienced it. And the wounded child part of us, when I do imaginative work and I have people access that part, tends to be overwhelmed. Just the little girl part of you that wants to crawl up on somebody's lap and be held and cry for about a thousand years. That's the wounded child part. Between these, these two parts and where most people live most of their lives is what I call the adaptive child part of you. This is what a great mentor called a kid in grown-ups clothing. It's the version of an adult that you cobble together in the absence of healthy parenting. Mm. And the adaptive child part of us is an immature version of a grown-up. And it tends to be black and white, rigid, harsh, unforgiving, compulsive. Whereas the wise adult part of us understands nuance and gray and is not relentless, but forgiving and is a more mature adult. And the adaptive child part of us is automatic. It has everything to do with our childhood roles in our family. It has everything to do with our trauma. You know, one of my pals, Gabor Mate, he said once, you, you rarely see the wound, you see the scar. Mm. And the wounded child part of us is the wound, the, the, the oh my God, I'm overwhelmed. The scar is I'm hurt and so therefore I'm going to fight you. Or I'm hurt and so therefore I'm going to please you. Or I'm hurt and therefore I'm going to fix you. Or, 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 or. And it, it, the book Us leads the reader through learning to have a relationship with your own adaptive child. What are your responses. Here's the quick generic 
that all of your listeners can do right now listening. Ready? And I'm going to ask you to out yourself too. Okay. <laughs> A knee-jerk response. Look, it's very nuanced and particular building blocks. Fight, flight, or fix. Your knee-jerk response. Ah, you're a helper. You're a caretaker. One of my gals. Pulling the Thread is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes Max, my oldest, tells me he wants to go in the back of the house and talk. What he means by this is purely the verb. He doesn't want to have a conversation. He wants to talk, to vent and unload, to fill me with factoids. Mom, want to know 40 things about acid rain? but more often to get things off his chest. It's fascinating to listen to him and what he perceives to be injustices, annoyances, and harms. I recognize that in those moments, he doesn't want advice or for me to higher mind him or for me to justify his own feelings to him, but simply to be a container for the one-sided stream, to just listen. I recognize what he's doing because I do it every week too, in therapy. I was thinking just the other week that it's rare to find someone who will just listen, maybe point out some patterns or hold me accountable when I say something wild. Wait, Elise, pause. Do you really feel that about yourself? Or why do you think you care about this so much? But aside from these moments of intervention when my therapist makes me reflect or feel, I'm doing the talking, and it helps me feel so much freer. Thank God for therapy. This is one of the reasons I'm very excited for therapeutic solutions like BetterHelp. They have licensed therapists who are available worldwide and specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQA issues, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com PTT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, .com/ptt My motto as you write is I'm upset until you're not. Yeah, there you go. That's a fixer. <laughs> right. Fighter is screw me, screw you. And a fleer, and let me be clear, you can be 6 inches away from somebody and fleeing. That's called stonewalling. And a fixer is yes, of those blessed code quote unquote codependent women, most therapists myself included. I'm only okay if you're okay. If you're not okay, I will do cartwheels to get you to be okay, because it's the only way I will feel good. This is different than a mature, responsible working on the relationship. That comes from a different part of us. This is knee-jerk, compulsive, anxiety-driven, oh my God, oh my God, let me take it away. So, uh, I would like our listeners to pause right now and to just out themselves to themselves. Your knee-jerk response, fight, flight, or fix. What are you? 
And if you're in a relationship, what would you tag your partner as being? That's your adaptive child. Mm -hmm. But it's much more sophisticated than that. I talk about dysfunctional relational stances that we repeat over and over again. For example, here's one near to my heart. Angry pursuit. (laughs) (laughs) Angry pursuit is an oxymoron. Angry pursuit will never get... Complaining about how the person isn't close to you will never get them closer to you. It is dysfunctional. It doesn't... That's what dysfunctional means. It doesn't work. It will never get you what you want. And the first phase of the therapy that we do, relational life therapy, and in some ways the first phase of this book, is identifying what your repetitive adaptive child relational stance is, the thing you do over and over and over again, automatically, knee-jerk, I talk about whoosh, W-H-O-O-S, it comes up like a wave. I just got to do this. I've got to fix this person. or I've got to stand up for myself. I've got to get out of here. And that is the hallmark of your adaptive child, that it's automatic and, and compulsive. And this whole book is about moving beyond that part of you into the wise adult part of you that can take a breath and do something not automatic, but chosen deliberate, more skillful. You know, I gave workshops around the country and my favorite slide in the workshop deck was this one. Other workshops teach you skills. We deal with a part of you that won't use them. (laughs) (laughs) It's so true. I was thinking, I'm thinking now, so I'm a fixer. My husband is a stonewaller. So a fleer, like he just shuts down. And my response when I'm thinking of the not even I don't know if I'd call it angry pursuer, but I just talk. So I this desperate need, yeah, to be understood. And so I'm just rationalizing and talking. And when we've done couples therapy with Stan Tatkin, he's like, Elise, like, why are you still talking? <laughs> Elise, I have news for you, sweetheart. No one is listening. <laughs> we all stopped five minutes ago. But let's talk about that since you're being so open. Look, there's a little girl part of you that did not get listened to, and perhaps with not great consequences certainly with a lot of loneliness. And maybe you had things to say that needed to be said and your mom or dad or your family or someone would have been a hell of a lot better off if they'd only heard you. Mm. You Children are truth tellers. And so you have this deep, well, if you, you can pass on this, but what was it that you needed to say that didn't get listened to? As a child? Yeah. I think it was just uh, a design. What needed to be fixed? Who needed to be fixed? Oh, that's an interesting question. I mean, I spent so much time alone as a kid in nature, thank God. But I think I just wanted to feel understood. Like, I think I just wanted to share. And I think it was 
loneliness. I think it was a desire to be seen by someone other than my horse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank God you had your horse. And your parents weren't aligned with you. They didn't give you the feeling that they were with you. They could see you. I feel like as a child of, you know, I was born in the late 70s, grew up in the 80s, sort of that era of benign neglect. So I don't know if I was unusual, but my dad, my parents were busy. My mom has workaholic tendencies, even though she didn't have a, you know, she numbs through work. So I spent a lot of time playing by myself. Yeah. And, and so I think it was that. I think it was, and I joined my dad in a lot of the things that he wanted to do. So... I spent a lot of time with my parents in that way, but it was more side by side and less like, tell me Contact. everything you're thinking. Does that make yeah. sense? Contact, yeah. 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 So I would say, if I may, do you tell me when we've gone too far? Uh, <laughs> you as a child endured a tremendous amount of emotional abandonment. Mm. And what gets triggered in you when you don't feel the connection, when your partner, for example, Stonewall, is not the adult you going, this is a pain in the ass. It's that little girl who uh, is flooded with abandonment and gets very frightened and feels like she's going to die. You know, one of the things I say to people in this circumstance Adults don't get abandoned. Adults get left. Abandonment is a childhood feeling. Yeah. Abandonment means if you leave me, I die. And when you have a lot of abandonment in your childhood, that's what gets triggered. That's why it's so compulsive. That's why you're still talking after nobody's listening. Because it's scary to just sit and be unlistened to. Yeah. Yeah. So what was happening to you, uh, and thank you for being so open. It's wonderful to be with you in this way. What's yeah. happening to you is your trauma trigger. And what that means is that something in the present is happening that's close enough to what happened in the past that you get confused. Your nervous system gets confused. Your body gets confused. You know, you don't remember trauma, you relive it. Mm. Make that point in the book. The, the vet who hears a car backfire, spins around with a gun in his hand, isn't thinking I'm walking down Main Street remembering combat. His body is back in combat. It's a super, your, your present is being uh, overtaken by your past. And that's trauma triggering. And that's what makes uh, life so dicey for couples. And so when your husband isn't listening to you because he's walled off, which is his adaptive child, based on whatever happened to him, you get trauma triggered. You don't say, oh, I'm being rejected right now. You say, I'm going to die. And that little girl gets desperate. And then the adaptive child kicks in and says, oh, I'll win him back. I'll win him back. I'll be pleasing. I'll be engaging. I'll be... Uh, smart, I'll be whatever the adaptive strategies are. And that goes into overdrive. And the problem is when your adaptive child meets his adaptive child and the two wise adult parts of you can go have a beer. I mean, they're not even in the room anymore. And <laughs> it, these two adaptive children are, are bashing it out with each other. 
Well, Linda and I are both fighters. Both of our adaptive children are fighters. And so we're like, screw you, screw you, screw you, screw you, screw you. <laughs> and meanwhile, the real Belinda and Terry can like, you know, go watch a movie and let these two have it. So the what's so critical is understanding this is part of our humanity, but that the adaptive child is not who you really are. There's a, an older, wiser, more mature part of you that, for example, can say, well, my husband in his adaptive child right now is a closed system. He's not listening to a damn thing I'm saying. That's kind of disappointing and lonely. But uh, I'm going to go, you know, watch a show on TV or call a girlfriend and screw him. And that's called freedom. That's liberation. Right. It it, it, it it breaks you from that circuit where you're like Adam, 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 driven by fear. And it's healing. You walking away from that means that you are tending to that scared little girl. Mm. And you are telling that little girl, it's okay. He may desert you, but I'm not deserting you. We're going to be okay. Mm. And that is the way out of these repetitive patterns that entrap us. I'm exceedingly careful about what I buy, not only because I live in a 1,500-square-foot house with children who sure have an awful lot of stuff, but also because I try to be conscious about everything I use. In short, I want to use everything I buy. In addition, thanks to a decade in the wellness industry, I am very keyed into product claims and product content. This is why I like Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin, which is clinically backed with high-quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. I also like their Symbiotic Plus 2, which is a probiotic that's simple and effective. Ritual makes the most elegant multivitamin around. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus has everything you need, specifically nine key nutrients in two capsules per day. Their unique beetle oil is so slick it's actually patented, and their capsule has a delayed release design, which is brilliant and essential, to help make it gentle on an empty stomach. And Ritual studies their vitamins, which is not the standard in the industry. Ritual conducted a university-led clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy. The results, it increased vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. As most of us are getting far less sun right now, vitamin D supplementation is essential. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is one of the few women's multis that's USP verified, meaning what's on the label is what's in the formula. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark. It's also soy-free, gluten-free, vegan-friendly, and formulated without GMOs. Did I also mention that Ritual is a certified B Corp and female-founded? Nothing makes me happier than these two facts. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash thread. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash thread for 25% off. 
do you feel in your, you know, obviously you're treating the relationship, but within the treating of the relationship, I would imagine that the healing of the individual becomes paramount. And I know people then usually pursue their own therapy, but is that, is like by healing the system, do the parts start to reintegrate? It's actually the other way around. I work on the system by working on the two partners in the system. The work is in the people. There is no such thing as working on the relationship. You were, I, I work on Elise and I work on your husband. You know, there's a great story about Phil Kaplow, the, the great Zen master. A couple, the, the whole Zendo was begging him to see this rip-roaring, fighting couple that was high up in the organization, but they were killing each other. And the community was very worried about them. And he says, look, I'm not a couples therapist. I'm just, leave me alone. And they says, please, 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 please. So the story goes, they came to him and they bowed. And they said, please help us. We, we, we fight like cats and dogs. And Kaplan looked at him and said, okay, give me the fight. I'll take care of it. Who's got the fight? <laughs> <laughs> and that's the story. So there is no, you can't work on the, you can only work on the two people in it. Yeah. Uh, RLT, relational life therapy, is really different from other couples therapy in that we do deep individual work. We do trauma work. We do inner child work while the other partner is sitting next to you. Mm. And I got to tell you, I have film of this and I tell, write stories of this in the book. It is so moving. You know, I'll tell you my classic story about adaptive children and how it works in a couple. This is the story I tell all the time, Dallas. True story. You know, I specialize on couples on the brink of divorce that no one else has. That's my beat. So a couple comes to me on the brink of divorce issue. He's a pathological liar. It's one of the first stories in the book. She says, if you ask him what brand of shoes he's wearing, he'll tell you they're sneakers. I mean, he just lies about everything. Okay. So I have a saying, show me the thumbprint and I'll tell you about the thumb. Give me the relational stance. That's the end of the seesaw that the kid was on. And I'll tell you about parent that was on the other end of that seesaw. So this guy was a champion evader. He was the kind of guy I say, oh, boy, the sky is blue. I go, well, aquamarine. You know, it's like, <laughs> he wasn't going to give me anything. After about four of these, I say to him, who tried to control you growing up? Right? I want you to think like I do. He, was, he had a black belt in evasion. So I'm a relational therapist. So I think relationally. So my next question is, okay, who was he trying to evade? Who tried to control you growing up? Sure enough, my father. He was a military man, ramrod straight, how he ate, how he sat, the clothes he wore, the courses he took, the friends he had, everything. I said, how did you adapt to this insanely controlling old man? And he looked at me and he smiled. And he said, I lied. I have a saying, adaptive then, maladaptive now. I teach my students, and we train thousands of students around the world now. I teach my students, always be respectful 
of the exquisite intelligence of that adaptive child. You did, you, you learned to be a fixer. You did exactly what you needed to do to protect yourself or get those supplies or take care of yourself the best way you could at the age you were doing it. Good for you, brilliant little girl, fantastic. But adaptive then, maladaptive now. Your partner is not your parent, you're not that little girl. If your partner is shop closed, you can go off and arrange some flowers or read a book, you don't need them. That little girl needs them, but mm -hmm. you the grown up don't need. And so we float all this, absolutely true story. They come back two weeks later and say, okay, we're all good. All right, I said, there's a story here. Tell me the story. They go, absolutely true. Between sessions, the wife sent him to a grocery store to get, we'll say, 12 things. And true to form, he came back with 11. And she says, where's the pumpernickel? And he says, every muscle and nerve in my body was screaming to say they were out of it. And I took a breath, and I looked at my wife, and I said, I forgot. And she, true story, she burst into tears. And she said, I've been waiting for this moment for 25 years. That's recovery. I'm going to cry. I've read that story, too. Yeah. I mean, is this, these are the, the three questions, or three questions that you ask, right? Who did you see do this? Who did it to you? Who did you do it to? And no one stopped you. I know it's a slight variation on that. Right. But is that when people are repeating, obviously he was in reaction to his father, but when people repeat abusive behavior or repeat a pattern, is that how you identify it? Who did it to you? Who did you see do it? Or who did you do it to and no one stopped you? But by the way, I want to go back to that moment where he looks at his wife and says, uh, I forgot. Yeah. That's, that's the moment my dear wife, the great family therapist, Belinda Berman, calls a moment of relational heroism. Yeah. I love that phrase. When every muscle and nerve in your body is screaming to do the same old, same old, and you take a breath, and in this moment, you choose to do it differently. That's the prefrontal cortex. That's your thinking and not acting automatically. That's the way out. That's the way out of this mess. Uh, to stop and think and choose. Okay, so who did it to you is obvious. Who did you see do it is obvious. Who did you do it to and no one stopped you? That's called false empowerment. And one of the things that RLT is known for, if I can, one of, I think, my contributions to the field is my attention to not just issues of shame, the one down inferior, but equal attention to grandiosity, the one up superior. For 50 years, psychotherapy, self-help, have focused on helping people come up from the one down of shame. But we've done a terrible job of helping people come down from the one up of grandiosity. And when you work with couples and when you work with men, you've got to know how to help people come down from that entitlement or selfishness or aggression and attack. 
So I had a guy in his 40s, subject to ridiculous, I mean, he was well off. He would literally destroy an entire room, subject to total rage attacks. Who was the rager in your family? No one. Who did you see do this? No one. Who did you do it to and no one stopped you? Yeah, I've been having temper tantrums since I've been four years old. Well, what did your parents do when you had a temper? Nothing. Uh, well, actually, mostly they eventually would give me what I wanted. Right. That's why you're still having them in your 40s. So I now have to parent you in ways that four-year-old four-year-old little boy should have been parented. And a lot of my book is dedicated to working with issues of grandiosity, both individually in the couple and in society, because grandiosity as a culture could be killing us as we're sitting here. The essence of grandiosity is superiority, being above it, being above the rules. And as you know, I don't want to get too abstract, but along with a lot of practical parts of the book, it's also a critique of what I call the toxic culture of individualism. I even write about the history of the idea of individualism. And as a history, it was cooked up by a bunch of white, rich men, this idea of the individual. And the essence of individuality, of individualism, is that we stand apart from nature. And it fuses with the tradition of patriarchy, which I've also written about for 40 years, which says that not only are we apart from nature, that's what it means to be an individual. I'm separate, I'm apart. That's what the word means. Not only are we apart from nature, but we are above nature and we control it, we dominate it. Whether the nature we're trying to control is our partners or our kids or our bodies, I've got to lose 10 pounds, or our minds, I've got to stop thinking so negatively. Control, 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 power over, power over is a toxic delusion. Mm. And the whole essence of coming into what I call us consciousness, us, is trading in the delusion that you are out of nature and above it for what I call the ecological humility of understanding that you're in nature and you depend upon it. You know, our relationships are our biosphere. We breathe it. And I say, you can choose to pollute your biosphere by having a temper tantrum like this guy over here. But you'll breathe in that pollution in your wife's withdrawal or coldness or retaliation. You, it's inevitable. You can't escape it. You're not outside the system. You're in it. And so when we stop thinking about win, lose, zero sum, I give in to her, he gives in to me, and we start thinking about, let me take care of this biosphere called my relationship that I live in, not as a sacrifice to my partner, but as enlightened self-interest. It's good for me, happy spouse, happy house. Then all the rules change, everything changes. Like I, some guy will say to me, well, why should I work so hard to make her happy? At which point I lean in and say, 
Well, you live with her. (laughs) Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Your feeling about grandiosity is slightly different too, right? Because, you know, the the cultural statement is, oh, really, grandiosity covers extreme shame. And you argue that that's about half of it. Half of is it. that accurate? That's, yeah. That's what the research indicates. Half of narcissists have underlying shame that they're escaping. And what the research shows, <laughs> the other half just think they're better than you and me. They just do. And what I write about on OPMLE, this concept, grandiosity can be an escape from shame, but it can also be a legacy of false empowerment. This guy who had temper tantrums and his family rewarded him for them by giving in to him. That's called false empowerment. We've spent a ton of time on shame, but very little time on false empowerment. Mm. Can I tell you a story? Yes. Is that all right? Yeah. I love to tell stories. Okay, here's my story. So I live in Boston. I'm from Jersey, but I live in Boston. And my ADHD darling son is having one of his very first play dates, about three, four. And another kid comes over. And it sounds like this. Uh, you want to play hockey? Hockey? You want to do hockey? You want to get stuck? Uh, want to get a puck? Want to go outside? Want to, want, to, want to throw a puck around? How about some hockey? You want to play hockey? This goes on for about three hours. The kid leaves. Justin comes boinging over to me and like Tigger. And he says to me, do you think the kid had a good time? And I look at my little son and I go, no. And he's stunned. And I say to him, honey, let me teach you something. If you want to do what you want to do, be alone. The minute you invite somebody into your world, you have to pay some attention to what they want to do. And I swear, Lisa, this is dead true. My little four-year-old looks up at me and goes, too much hockey? (laughs) (laughs) Now, also true. Fast forward, Chris is on the brink of divorce well well healed, takes his wife to the Caribbean for five days for some much needed R&R. The five days sounds like this. Hey, you want to have sex? You want to be close? Want to get physical? <laughs> want to be intimate? They sit in my office. I turn to Mrs. Chris. I say, how was the trip? And she goes, it was terrible. And Chris is stunned. Absolutely true. You know what I did with Chris? No. <laughs> I told him the Justin story. <laughs> too much hockey. <laughs> too much hockey. Too, too much sex. And I said to him, listen, there's a word for what I was doing with my four-year-old son. It's called parenting. It's what you deserved and did not get. And because you didn't get that installed in you at four or five years, you have to schlep to Boston, pay me an arm and a leg, and I'll install it now. 
poor guy. I'm sorry this happened to you. And this is an attitude when I'm working with grandiosity, particularly with men, that I call, oh, you poor perpetrator. Mm. Poor guy. And the language I often use is, oh, you were set up to. Oh, of course, you were set up to be the asshole that you are now. I'm so sorry for you. You know, very rarely in my field does an offender get held with both accountability and compassion at the same time. Either they're beat the hell out of or they're excused the hell out of. But I knew when I started working with uh, abusive men, having been raised by an abusive man, that I had to find a way to hold these men accountably and lovingly in the same breath. Mm -hmm. And this idea that grandiosity comes from trauma, that false empowerment is a form of trauma to a child, it's not a favor to them, allows me to look at what they're doing as not what they ever asked for, as what they were trained to do, and as having disastrous consequences for them, let's unwind it. You know, I came home with a bad report card at, I think, second or third grade. And my dad, who was a rager, you never knew what he would do. He threw the report card on the ground, and he laughed. And he said, it's just because those assholes don't know what to do with you, you're too bright for them. That was no favor to me. I didn't get good grades until I was in college. I had to go to a community college to get A's and B's because my entire school career, I'd gotten B's and F's. And I went from there up to a state school and got out of my, of my family. But I would drop into school once a week because I was so brilliant and those assholes didn't know what to do with me. That was not a favor, that was trauma. And that's an example of false empowerment, right? Yeah. And so I know you write about you write about that enmeshment, the way that a child can become also false, falsely empowered by becoming their parents' caregiver, or like extremely in an extreme way. That's incest, right, or molestation. Like you're so special. Yeah, you're the hero. Yeah, the, the hero, the fixer, the caretaker, the surrogate spouse, the the family pride. One of the things I say is the most destructive phrase in the English language. Honey, you understand me more than your father. Mm. That is no favor. So understanding that false empowerment is no favor to a child, that it sets you up as a grown-up for grandiosity, and that grandiosity is a scourge, it really can help a lot of people. You have to... Um, see, shame feels bad. But the dirty secret in therapy is that grandiosity feels good. Intoxication is grandiosity. Acting out is grandiosity. Making out with your secretary is grandiosity. And you have to think your way down from grandiosity because it feels good and you feel entitled to it. Mm -hmm. Grandiosity impairs your judgment. Think about mania and bipolar disorder. That's crack natural grandiosity. I'll tell you a story. Yay. I talk to people about living a contempt-free life that you don't put up with uh, superiority coming in your direction and you don't indulge it going out. 
that you don't indulge contempt in either direction, either at you by others, at you by you, or at you dishing out to others. And grandiosity is a form of contempt. I'm in Boston, I'm a New Yorker, and Boston has, uh, it's on record, the worst drivers in the country. And in New York, somebody will cut you off and be a pig, but then they'll scoot off at 60 miles an hour. In Boston, somebody cuts you off and then drops down to 20 miles an hour, makes you sit there, you know, passive aggressive. So somebody will do that. And I'll be doing that Star Wars laser beam thing. I'll be looking at their fat little head through the windscreen. And I'll, I'll be in utter contempt and rage. And when I was younger, I would pull aside from a, a person like, roll down my window and scream at him. And nowadays, this is a story I tell all my grandiose clients. Nowadays, I'll look at that fat little head and I'll say to myself, as I breathe myself down from the rage and contempt, I will say to myself, you don't deserve this. Hmm. You may deserve somebody screaming at you for the way you drive, but I deserve it. I'm not breathing myself down from grandiosity and contempt and rage for your sake. I'm doing it for my sake. You know what? I grew up in a contempt-drenched family. I internalized that contempt and it became the core of a depression I've wrestled with for 60 years. I've played out that contempt in my relationships, been a jerk and done a lot of damage. Not today, I don't need it. So in this moment, on this day, you drive the way you drive and God bless. And that's the way you come down from grandiosity for your own sake. As you know, and we've I've interviewed you about this book before, I think you wrote, I don't want to talk about it. Was that your first book? It's the most important book, I think, for any mother of sons, for any man. It's about the legacy of male depression and how it manifests in covert ways, which have sort of slipped through society. It's so important. And I want to talk, I know people come to you on the brink of divorce, and I thought, I think this is fascinating. I'm looking for this tooth. So you write, some infidelities do end in divorce, to be sure, but statistically, most don't. Two thirds of marriages survive the hit. I thought that was fascinating. So and obviously, infidelity is one symptom of a marriage that's in the dark night of its soul. But in what you see, how frequently can you bring a couple back from the edge of infidelity or the edge in general both look when it comes to infidelity i have no interest in helping the couple survive i'm after bigger game i want to use this crisis as a springboard for transformation mm. of each of the two individuals and the relationship itself so i'm treating a, a couple now where the guy was a grandiose, entitled, workaholic, enormously successful, great athlete, was a decorated athlete, spent, if he wasn't uh, working on his multi-billion dollar industry, he was uh, working on his body, not really present for his wife, not really present for his kids, didn't feel much, 
when I first met him, had, like a lot of the guys I work with, virtually no interiority. It's like a camera. Mm. No internal space. We have very little reflection, no feelings. And, and he acted out with his trainer. Duh. And then when he had to deal with his kids who hated him and his wife who threw him out, uh, suddenly it dawned on him that there was more to the world than what he'd been obsessed with. He woke up. The wife was like, you know, I don't do 50-50. I'm not neutral. I take sides. The wife's uh, main quote-unquote contribution was that she was there. But at a deeper level, she allowed it. So many of the women I work with accommodate to behaviors they have no business putting up with. And then the guy just doesn't dirt in the end anyway, Mm. which is what happened. So he had been barking up the wrong tree his whole life. And she had been putting up with uh, a level of distance and a lack of care that, uh, frankly, a healthier woman would have fought over. That was how it worked between them. So she found her voice. Uh, She was pissed as a rat and had to come down off of the ledge of just rage and you're a bum to get me out of here and learn how to use that voice on an ongoing basis in the marriage rather than one giant blow up 20 years into it. And he had to learn how to be relational. He had no idea how to be relational. Here's something I talk about in the book that I work with with a lot of my guys, my captain of industry guys. The adaptive child lives for gratification and safety. The wise adult has a sense of what I call relational joy. Relational joy is the deeper down pleasure that's just about being in the relationship and being connected. Sometimes the relationship's gratifying. Think about parenting. Sometimes it's a pain in the ass. But the deeper down joy of just being there with this person goes beyond whether it's gratifying or not. A lot of the men that I treat have no idea what relational joy is. They've lived their entire lives for gratification. Hmm. And I awaken them to this deeper down pleasure than spring comes. I had a guy, this isn't Bruce Springsteen who wrote the forward, so let me be clear. <laughs> but I was working with a guy who was a rock and roller. And he said when he was on stage, he was alive. And when he was home, he was like a computer on sleep mode. He was just, and he was depressed. And his four kids, but daddy, daddy, leave me alone, leave me alone. He was barely there for his wife. And then he got back on stage, he was alive again. And so I began to talk to him about gratification versus relational joy, which he'd had none of, none of in his childhood. We did the trauma work. And he talked to his little boy. And he, he, he did what I work with a lot of men. I call it learning to be a family man, learning to give and not just get. And when his kids would go, daddy, 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 he started saying yes. And slowly, slowly, slowly. So he came in one day, true story, and he said, I just spent the best day of my life. This is a guy worth hundreds of millions of bucks, playing to arenas and tens of thousands. I had the best day of my life. Okay, I'll bite, what was it? He said, my wife and my kids and I 
spent all day Sunday from seven in the morning to seven at night in our PJs playing the most sadistic game of Monopoly you can imagine. And it was the best day of my life. Mm -hmm. And I tell that story to my guys because they don't know what that day feels like until they do the work of reading a book like mine or getting a therapist and learning what real connection and joy can do for you. I love Terry and his work, and I love that as a marriage therapist, he takes sides and is not a 50-50 straddler looking for the wisdom in each side. And I also love, I mean, this has been my experience in couples therapy, <laughs> but you come armed with all the content, quote unquote, right? Like all the wrongs and the issues. And I think that the power of a good marriage therapist is their ability to tell you that they're not really interested, that it doesn't really matter what you're t- fighting about. It's what's beneath the fight. One thing that we didn't get to in our conversation that I wanted to leave you with is he has a formula when you're speaking for repair, looking to make a repair in a relationship that I think is a really powerful little list. And this is what he suggests. One, this is what I recollect happened. Two, this is what I made up about it. Three, this is what I felt. And four, this would help me feel better. And ultimately that's, really the goal, right? As he says, a relationship is a biosphere. So how do you keep it clean? How do you keep it intact and safe and loving? And that will invariably require repair. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. Please sign up for my newsletter, I promise I won't spam you, or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunan to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, i.e. wherever you're listening right now. I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends you think might like the show, because that is how podcasts grow. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community.
Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students.